Kaku. Welcome to the Aloha Friday Conversation, Art, Culture, and Ideas in Hawaii. I'm Noa Tanigawa. Lono ikamakahiki. We're feeling the season now, and this hour, we'll all tune into the makahiki season a little bit more. And we'll meet a fine woodworker on Hawaii Island, too. But we're starting out the day on the Valley Isle. There, the ACLU Hawaii's launched a suit against Maui County and Mayor Victorino, claiming, claiming that due process rights and constitutional protections of personal property were violated when uh, they were removed recently at Kanaha Beach, right near Kahului. Officials are saying the, quote, intervention was sparked by concerns about health, safety, access, and wildlife in the area. Ultimately, Maui County and DLNR removed 54 vehicles and 58 tons of solid waste from Amala Place and Kanaha Beach area. Mayor Victorino says removal notices were posted weeks in advance and social services were offered. DLNR will replace a damaged perimeter fence that they say was allowing predators into the Kanaha Pond area. Now, we're going to be hearing from Jongwook Wookie Kim. Kim is legal director for the ACLU Hawaii. He arranged a conversation with one of the four plaintiffs in the suit. Sonia Davis, 64, was unsheltered and did get rental assistance housing for a year, but recently found herself back on the beach. She missed a call from her probation officer one day. That's a parole violation. Davis was found, arrested, and jailed. Yeah, um, like I said, I just, I just got out of jail for probation violation. And then that's when I found out that they were doing a sweep and that we have five days to be out of there. My sister, she had her stuff over there too, but she went to Honolulu and visit with her daughter. And my niece went in Malama for drug treatment. And so I was responsible for their stuff. And because we only had five days, I had no vehicle to move anything and I had no place to take all the stuff. So I was told if I still be there, that I would get arrested. So when they came, I just took what I could and left. Where are your belongings now? All gone. They took everything. Do they give you a, a receipt or something for it? They do that on Oahu. That tells you that you can claim the items at, at a certain time and place? No, they never give us anything. But I know they came in with a dump truck. Some people tried to go back for their things, but there were cops all over the place telling everybody they have to leave. And go where? They didn't even tell us where to go. We just left. We went to another park. Now we're at Kanaz, but I'm in the park now. We stay here during the day, and then nighttime we go to KCC Park, and then we sleep outside by the gate, and then in the morning we come back in over here. Hmm. A few of you do that? Everybody else is all scattered. I don't know where everybody else went, but there's like maybe 20 of us to come in and out. What would you like to have happen, Sonia? I, I would love to get into one place, but I also, watching my niece's dog, she is in treatment. And so it's hard with all these dogs I have. Is there temporary shelter where pets are allowed on your island? They are, but it's already full. Are you working with a social worker on getting a place in here? Uh, yes. Right now, I'm waiting for a um, meet with the Care Hawaii, and they're going to help me get into housing. I've done that before through Family Life Center. 
but that was only a temporary place. So I, I just got to stay there for a year, and then I was back on the streets again. So, yeah, <laughs> your experiences, you've been through so much. <laughs> Wait now. I so, know. And now you have your nieces. Is it just yes. two dogs? No, she has three. I have two. She said, please, empty whatever you do. Don't give up my dog. <laughs> okay, Sonia, so what's the way out here? What are you seeing ahead? Right now, I'm waiting because I was in jail. They stopped my Social Security and my medical so I'm waiting to get reinstated with my Social Security. That's the only income I have. Where are you getting your mail? My grandson's place. Okay, so you, you are getting your mail. Yes. Sonia, okay. You know, we're coming up on the like the holidays now and everything. What's that like on the street? You know, we just learn to survive out here and take it one day at a time and do the best we can and it is hard, but like I said, if we can get a place where I can keep the dogs, that would be great. You know? It's not like I don't want to go into one place. It's just that they just don't want to accept dogs everywhere. Mm -hmm. You need to get a place like on a farm or something, on some kind of egg lot. Okay. Thank you yes. so much, Sonia. Thank you, Noi. Okay. Now, Wookie, what is the case that ACLU is bringing here? So this case is at its core about ensuring that houseless people, uh, that their constitutional rights are, are being respected just because they are living in public spaces does not mean that they forfeit many of the rights that we all have and, and take for granted. Specifically here, what happened was the state decided that houseless people's personal property and belongings were not worthy of the same protections that housed people's property are granted every single day. And, you know, some of this stems from the simple fact that our Constitution gives us many protections that reside in the, the, the home or the house. And when you don't have a house, you're, you're exposed. You're exposed to the state. You're exposed to... Um, government intervention. And that does not mean that the government can just take your property without giving you due process. Due process, of course, is about ensuring that the government is informing you about what they're going to do. And then they're giving you an opportunity to, to be heard, to contest what, what is about to happen. And in this situation, our clients were not given either. They were not given adequate notice um, under the Hawaii Constitution. Notice needs to include information about the procedures that one can use to challenge the planned action. And the notice that our clients received included nothing about procedures to challenge the action. That's part of what happened here, where as the sweeps were occurring, because Sonia and Jessica and Adam and Laura Lee they did not know anything about how they could challenge or contest the sweep, about what would happen with the possessions that were taken, about whether or not the county was going to store the property and what they would do, how long they would keep it, how you could retrieve it. That's hugely problematic here. So and you're then, saying course, that the violation is that this was unreasonable seizure of their property. 
it's a separate issue, but it's it's sort of related in that yes, there there was an unreasonable seizure here. It's one thing when the government seizes abandoned property, but here many of our clients had unabandoned property that the county clearly knew was not abandoned and yet treated that property like it was trash or like it was abandoned. And under the Fourth Amendment, that is not a reasonable seizure. It is not permissible to seize property simply because it's in public spaces. Uh-huh. Was this occasion any different from previous sweeps that have occurred on Maui and other islands as well? In short, not really. You know, I think these kinds of sweeps are occurring every day statewide. One aspect that was particularly troubling about what happened on Maui here is, first of all, the, the scale and the size and the scope of the planned action. And also, I think a little bit of the, the brazenness with which the action was taken. You know, at least here in the city and county of Honolulu, they're at least making some kind of attempt to comply with due process and the Fourth Amendment. We don't think that Honolulu's system is adequate or appropriate or just. But I think what's particularly concerning about Maui is that it's basically the Wild West. No one knows what procedures are being followed. There's no system the county has outlined to the public about how, when, whether sweeps are conducted. That was one of the reasons why we decided to intervene in this particular instance. I see. You know, I spoke with one of the service providers on Maui, and she was really feeling like this suit could, in fact, impede delivery of services for houseless on Maui. Maybe, Sonia, you can share a little bit about how the sweep makes it harder to get services. How, if you are a service provider, are you even, even able to connect if you don't know where that person is? Could I ask oh, you about yeah. that, Sonia? Were many of the people there at uh, Kanaha working? At least yeah, half of the people there were had jobs. When they did the sweeps at harbors and other places, then everybody started coming where we was at. Now it's harder because my car is illegal and I don't have license and I have to drive it on a road to to a place where we can be safe and not going to be harassed. Oh, and you could still be ticketed any time. Yes, and I'm on the probation, and I cannot afford to, you know, because it would be a violation probation. You can't stay where you are. It's very dangerous to go anywhere. Hmm. Yeah, that's why I felt safe where we were staying at, because I don't have to drive far. I don't have to go on the main road. I just come into the park. One message or one point that gets lost in the debate is that Doing these sweeps does not help. The sweep has done nothing to help Sonia or any of her uh, fellow residents get back on their feet. If anything, it's making it even harder to get back on their feet. And so the solution is, first of all, to think about an approach that doesn't rely first on policing and criminal enforcement to, quote unquote, address houselessness. And, and really, it's to think more broadly about what other ways are there to address this really deep-seated problem. 
Wookie Kim, Legal Director, ACLU Hawaii, with Sonia Davis, a plaintiff in a suit claiming that Maui County and Mayor Victorino violated due process rights and constitutional property protections. The mayor has previously claimed otherwise, and a spokesperson says the county of Maui does not comment on pending litigation. Support for HPR comes from Mutual Publishing in Hawaii, publishing local cookbooks, children's books, history, and more. Their Kaimuki bookstore is open Monday to Friday, 9 to 4.30, also online at mutualpublishing.com. Inflation is at its highest level in 30 years. Auto prices and gasoline prices are especially high, and the president had better do something about it. But what can he do? I'm Josh Barrow for That Plus Problems at the Ports and Why People Don't Trust Election Results. Join Elizabeth Brunig, Ross Douthat, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, and me for Left, Right, and Center. Beginning this evening at 7, following All Songs Considered. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Anchor Systems Hawaii. Restrictions are loosening just in time for Hawaii's Wood Show 2021. It's that rare show where the trees of Hawaii actually come to you. Hawaii's woodworkers, carvers, and turners are a formidable bunch in this state, and the student category has really been incredibly inventive lately. The pieces include movement, light, secret compartments. It's a fun part of that show. Forrester Irene Sprecher is with Forest Solutions on Hawaii Island, and she juried the 2020 Hawaii Wood Show. She knows a lot about the state's forest products. Hawaii has a forest product industry. It's not like you see on the mainland, but we do have one, and there's so much more potential for it to grow, especially as we think about how do we live more sustainably. You know, maybe we'll never be able to get away from wood imported from the mainland, but there's definitely both an interest and an opportunity to be able to do more with Hawaii-grown wood here in the islands. How would that happen? And could bamboo be a part of that, maybe? Yeah, I know folks that are growing bamboo for timber that you can use in houses. There's some policy work that probably needs to be done that could help us facilitate it a little bit faster. But I think we're at a point right now where, I mean, we've been making investments in planting trees for decades and decades. And right now, and probably in the next 10, 15, 20 years, we're kind of getting at a point that we've got this resource, this planted resources that's ready to be utilized. So that next piece is how do we get people who understand management and utilization of forest resources, how do we bring in those facilities that we need and the companion industries associated with that in order to be able to take it to that next level? Like, how do we get a a more sophisticated lumber sawmill or a veneer mill 
We really have to plan for the infrastructure to make use of this resource now. You do. And when you're thinking about okay, how do you build an industry that would be able to utilize these resources, it's like, okay, well, we need the equipment to be able to make lumber. And then we need some place to put the extra waste products, whether that's like maybe biomass or energy. If you can put more of those pieces together and I the sustainability initiatives and conversations help to bring those different pieces together, then it becomes a little bit more of a reality. And I'm and looking I, at forestry as as one of those diversified industries, yes. right? How big could it be? I was just sitting around with some experts yesterday talking about what the potential is just based on what we have here. And there is opportunity to grow on the, the product side. There's definitely land that's not ideal for other things that you could do and plant more. More and more people are interested and want to be involved in stewardship of trees, management of trees. There's really beautiful trees that can be the flooring in our houses, the doors that we open. I mean, there's definitely a space for Hawaii lumber, Hawaii timber products here, maybe they won't be the internal structural parts of our houses, but they'll be the things that we celebrate in our house. Mm-hmm. Forester Irene Sprecher, she mentioned the Hawaii Forest Industry Association, which sponsors this annual wood show. Master woodworker Ty Lake is a member of HFIA. Lake first arrived in Kona on Hawaii Island in 1980. An architectural woodworker, he found a market for high-quality furniture made from Hawaii's woods. Ty Lake launched his own business in 1991. There's a certain logic to, to literally making a living uh, where you are going out, you're responsible for the source of your materials, you're able to plant more trees when you need to, you can keep that circle of life going. And then the actual making of something and making somebody happy with that is really satisfying. I wish more people had opportunities to do this sort of thing for a living. That's one of the focuses of HFIA is, is keeping more educational opportunities available and um, trying to make that accessible. Tell us what this particular medium is like. Why do you like it? Every day is like Christmas. You open up a, a log and you really don't know what's going to be in there. The wood itself suggests to you like, wow, this should really be a dining table or or this is picture frames or this is could be a really cool table if we just cut it this way or that way. And you really have to respect each and every piece that comes off the mill in Hawaii, especially because the grain's so wild. So I like that challenge. I, I like that uh, kind of surprise of seeing what's in there. And then the medium itself. It takes a really wide skill set to be a woodworker. I mean, you have to know about your motors and cutters and all kinds of things and business and whatnot. So I find that it keeps me on the edge of my seat. It really engages me uh, from a design point of view, academically, the history of it. It's a very wide experience for me. In terms of the material, what have you found you need to know, you know, in terms of (laughs) wood itself? Yeah, there's a lot of rules because we are a crossroads here because people fall in love with Hawaii, want to take something home. You might have a piece going to Reno, Nevada or Dubai or wherever. So there's a lot of rules that govern uh, responsible woodworking. You have to allow for the movement of furniture across different climate zones. 
you have to prepare your material properly. You have to dry it right. Uh, you can't rush things. Joinery is all traditional. These things have been worked out for hundreds of years. Uh, you you can't cheat. You have to do everything just right. Yeah, you have to you have to pay attention to the rules and care for your material. Make sure it's it's properly dried, properly seasoned. And like I said, you just don't cheat. Mm. Uh, is there anything particular about wood you've come across in Hawaii? Hawaii's woods. Oh, that's this is heaven. This, this is an amazing <laughs> place for woods. How so? We have a diversity of species here like no place else on the planet. I mean, I'm looking out my window right now. Here's a Norfolk Island pine. Here's a pheasant wood from Thailand. Here's a lychee from China. Here's, a, you know, I'm just looking around at my, <laughs> my yard here. And each one of these woods has unique properties. And a lot of them are extraordinarily beautiful. Like people generally don't see lychee wood, but here's one that's got to be pruned, you know. How do you open the wood up? Oh, uh, so everybody knows what a tree looks like. Well, you got to connect the dots between that and a board. So we drop it into sections that we can handle. Longitudinally, then, or you cut it like a celery across the ways? Length, or? No, lengthwise, <laughs> lengthwise. Well, it depends on what you're making now. If, if you're making bowls, you'll be cutting it into blocks that'll fit onto your lathe and, uh, you know, roughly square bowl shape and then make them round. For furniture, we're looking for matching grains. We're looking for tabletops. So we're cutting it lengthwise. And that's done with either on-site with a large chainsaw or we get these over to what we call band mills. These are horizontal bandsaws that will take one slice, like a bread slicer, just one after another going down through the log. You and I could be looking at the same insides and thinking very different things. <laughs> what do you look for? We're, a lot of times we're looking for what the wood is saying. As you cut through a tree, it's like cutting into a river. It's just the, the way the grains go. And so each board you take off is going to reveal a different pattern. And sometimes you look at that pattern, you go, oh, my God, that's a perfect hall table. Or, or, geez, two of those together would be an ideal dining table. The wood itself drives a lot of my creative process. Each slab kind of will reveal what it wants to be. And if you're, if you're lucky, you, you, you get to listen to that and go ahead and uh, follow it through into a finished piece. Is Hawaii wood special in some way? I mean, okay, there's a variety here. There's a variety, but also a lot of these woods are not from here originally. And Hawaii, as you know, has all these different climate zones, right? So depending on how much moisture and how much sunshine and how much soil there is, trees will grow differently here. So for instance, on Kona side, our monkey pod will have much darker to black streaks running through it because the conditions are a little more severe here. Hilo side, it's a more uh, brown, more consistent looking wood. Same thing with mango. If the mango can grow all the way from the ocean up to about 2,000 feet here. And the higher elevation ones are a little more stressed. So that shows up in the grain with more color, uh, with more curl, we call it, figure. Um, each, each little climate zone produces a slight uh, variation on, on the kind of wood that you're going to get. Keeps it really interesting. I see. I wish I could give a, people a good picture of the kind of work that you do, because, yes, there are broad areas that really do seem to respect the grain, broad areas of that. And then they, they will come to some fine points. And very often the, the legs of your things taper. The, the corners of things come to almost tenuous points, and yet they work. They hold everything up. I mean, this is kind of a different 
design thing you're also pursuing, Ty? Well, you try. You know, you, I say you see what the wood is suggesting, and and um, you you work with that. I had the experience just a couple days ago. Is I, I needed to get up on my workbench, and I'm using um, a little stool that I built with my father 64 years ago. <laughs> and you, you wonder why why you invest time and care into into some little thing that you're going to use. And it's you know it's going to be there for generations. You know, it's going to be something that. Uh, will be passed down in your family and uh, hopefully will inspire you to um, seek more harmony in your own life. You know, these everyday things that, that create a calm spot, you know, that, that let a tree kind of keep speaking to you. <laughs> Fun to think about it that way. Master woodworker Ty Lake, see his work in the 2021 Hawaii Wood Show, opening next Saturday, November 20th, at Hawaii Opera Plaza, just past Honolulu Museum on Baratania. Easy parking. Woods of Hawaii on view through December 5th. Now we're heading for a visit with artist philanthropist Taiji Terasaki. He worked in the design field and for various nonprofits and was fathering his children before committing deeply to art in the last several years. We're visiting now for an example of what it's like to feel switched on about producing work. I mean, there's kind of a Willy Wonka feeling in Terasaki's high ceilinged glass studio there in Wailupe. It's surrounded by sustainable taro and aquaculture landscaping. And in the studio, several people are busy over desks and light tables. We walk over to maybe a six-foot square wall sculpture that Terasaki made in response to the January assault on the Capitol in Washington, D.C. We can see strips of images that are woven and undulating all the way through that piece. So I think from the beginning when I started working seriously in art, I tried to respond immediately to things that are happening. And so the insurrection, of course, occurred. And, you know, it really, we haven't realized all the implications of it all. But even though I don't always have the facts and everything, I, I try to construct art within two weeks. Well, I forgot now. <laughs> it could have been a little longer, but... Really? How did it take shape? How did it take shape? So it's woven with the painting on the capital of George Washington. And that painting is about democracy, actually. It's the, kind of that Sistine Chapel effect. Yes. You know, because it's like the orb of the sun in the center and these angelic people appear to be floating in clouds. Yes. So and woven that. Woven with the, the people that uh, attacked the Capitol. This was our first piece, which we decided to try to do an AR piece. So um, there's a little QR code there, and um, we... <laughs> We learned how to do that. Wait, wait, wait a minute. So what was the idea? The paper weaving is oh, inside. Actually, this is metal. So this is also something we tried. <laughs> so now... <laughs> <laughs> because, of different. course, it's warped in ways, and it's holding its shape the way it would be very difficult to get paper to do. Yeah. The image is woven and warped, and then and, what happens? And then... This is doing the QR, QR code right? thing, code people, you know? So you see George Washington, and you see all the... Okay, so when you look at the painting, mm -hmm. using the uh, connection through the QR code, mm -hmm. you begin to see figures, words emerging. Yeah, uh, giving it a little virtual experience. So you're doing AR, augmented reality. Yeah, so in a lot of work, quite a lot of work that followed, I 
approach things in a similar way okay. where I included AR. Okay. No, wait, wait. <laughs> um, you have to think. What does that do for us, Daiji? Okay. Well, my, my work tends to be a lot, like you say, storytelling. There's a lot of information to convey to people. Something that, that I always been dealing with is, you know, how to communicate that story. And a lot of times that information seems in a way very didactic and it doesn't like, right? But then I think through the AR, there's a chance, there's a little window there where the viewer will accept. So look what you've done. Mm -hmm. you've, you've got these animations, pow, like coming forward and the different fonts are very interesting. You've got animated figures coming out, also popping out. Of so you're, you're really visually trying to keep it interesting. I actually developing an app, so I'm trying to explore that too. Mm -hmm. But um, mm -hmm. a lot of my other work mm -hmm. is not so animated like that. They're actually interviews, going to farms, photographing the farms and making an artistic piece. But to for get another project. for another part project, and that's the Maui Culture and Arts. Does the Maui show have an overall theme? The director there, Naida, um, she contacted me and said that actually she's interested in the work because it, it's addressing COVID and kind of that immediate immediacy. So the whole show centers around the COVID period. I would say I'm glad, <laughs> I feel like we're all kind of glad that it would seem to be coming out of it. And I'm glad that I'm not making any more work directly about that period. Mm -hmm. But historically, hopefully, that I, I did my part to kind of record during this period. And it's great to have that Maui show as kind of a capstone on that work because you were incredibly productive. It was as though you got your studio in gear in that period. <laughs> really. And yeah. so you pivoted from the Maui show to what you're showing now at HIF, the Hawaii International Film Festival. Three really different works. Mm -hmm. I remember a large installation you did on immigration there yes. on Baritania and then you took that to Los Angeles. So immigration has been one of your issues. What happened with that one was the Trump travel ban that happened. Then that's how I reacted. I mean, believe me, if, if you knew me before, I was not this type of person to, to try. I mean, I I still don't speak out so verbally, but I try to speak out through art. And so I find that's a way for me, right, as an artist. But in the past, I, I definitely wasn't that way. Um, what way? Uh, to speak out on social issues or, you know, current events of the time I or know, things like, like that. It's like, where would you have spoken out? <laughs> Who would you have spoken out to? I, I really do believe art goes through movements. I mean, I went to art school years back and to speak out politically or social issues was not the thing to do in art. But it's very acceptable now, I would say. It's, it's even the role of art today is to do that. So at the Bishop Museum now, you've got an installation that recalls some of the techniques you were just experimenting with. Mm -hmm. It's the mist projections. Yes, yes. I love the um, medium of mist and I'm now calling it Miss Media, but trying to incorporate that in many aspects of my work. Hiff told me that they were doing Waterman, and Duke Kahanamoku was the, the topic of the film. And so I looked into it and I was thinking, wow, I wonder if there's a connection I could make you know, with that. 
I became fascinated with the natatorium, the whole swim culture during that period. And 30s? Yes, around there, mm -hmm. right, around there. And it's just fascinating how Duke made his appearance in the world and Hawaii was put on the map. And archival pictures I found, it's incredible what, what went on during that period. Ooh, you could enter Taiji Terasaki's missed experience on the Bishop Museum campus as a part of HIF, the Hawaii International Film Festival. Terasaki also has an augmented reality piece, Fragile Earth, showing at HIF. There's his pieces in, at the Maui Cultural and Arts Center are continuing as well. But speaking of HIF, programming for the entire festival is already underway. Many films are streaming, but in-person screenings and events are happening all across the state, too. And the Maui Film Festival launches next week, set, uh, November 17th. They'll be doing Films Under the Stars at the MAC. Streaming continues to December 8th. Uplifting, mind-altering, Earth-friendly types of issues take stage on Maui's film festival, so it takes a village to present this. Thank you. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from PAR Hawaii, whose nearly 700 employees help to keep Hawaii on the move with more than 100 hele and 76 gas stations on Oahu, Maui, and Hawaii Island. parhawaii.com. We all feel it. Summer flowers are gone, days are way shorter, and there's a nip in the breeze. We're in Hawaii's makahiki season. Imaikalani Winchester was born and raised in Eva on Oahu. He's in a Ph.D. program at UH Manoa studying Hawaiian pedagogy, and he's been teaching at Halaukumana Public Charter School in Makiki for 18 years. Their beautiful Makahiki Festival is scheduled for later in November. And even now, Winchester says they're preparing for protocols and events that mark this significant season. Makahiki is about time, specifically... For an agrarian society, the seasonal aspect of our relationship with nature becomes incredibly important to cohabitate and coexist with nature in a way that we can produce what we need to survive. Effectively, the practicality of a culture is so important. Exactly. So, so much. So Makahiki right now is about restoration of not just practice, um, not just ceremony, not just rituals, not just the names of these old akuas and the connections to them, but um, the revival of Makahiki is a restoration of ourself and our identity um, as Kanaka living um, in an occupation that has tried systematically to remove and dismember our identity from us. It's so hard to figure out how to celebrate or what to do with the idea of makahiki today, mm. considering so many of us, like me, are non-Hawaiian. I really wonder what are the deepest parts of makahiki that we can participate in? I think makahiki is an important time for us to reevaluate, And that's ultimately what the, the season takes a look at, is an evaluation of our practices, an evaluation of our success, an evaluation of our progress, you know. Imai, 
in ancient times, what would actually happen in Makahiki season? <laughs> uh, the Makahiki season was a very exciting time, Ikubakahiko. Um, it was the, uh, the season of Ku to the season of Lono. Hawaiian time was divided between Ku and Lono. And so Lono came during the winter seasons. And so his kinolau or his uh, body forms come in the form of the dark clouds, the shorter days, the rains, the heavy rains that are going to be coming that we're also accustomed to. And so during this time, the chief in ceremony and ritual would meet with the kahunas and they would kilo, they would observe the rising of Makali'i in the east. That's the Pleiades. Pleiades, The right. seven sisters, uh-huh. Known by many names, by many civilizations. Um, but for us, we call it Makali'i. And the rise of Makali'i in the east during this time signaled the changeover from the Ku season to, to Lono season. And so the chief would relieve himself of sovereign control at the time in a ceremony and offer it to Lono. Lono would be given that honor. Um, and during this time, many ceremonies would be held throughout the season. It was a time for the chiefs to ka'apuni or to travel uh, around with the Akualoa, um, who is the long staff. Um, if you've ever seen some of the, the ceremonies, the Akualoa represents Lono. The, Can you describe it? Yeah. The Akualoa is a tall staff with a cross piece at the section. From it hang two pe'a, which are two kapa pieces. The long piece which is held by the hand is called the Aulima, and the cross piece at the top section is called the Aunaki. Um, these are important because these are the two fire starters in a Hawaiian tradition. So we would start fire with hao. Um, and so part of what Lono brings is the fire starters and the pe'a sort of catches the wind and it means the sparking of life, you know. And so Lono would be draped with lei, uh, with hulu, uh, specifically that of the ka'upu bird would be representative of famine to remind the people and the chief to avoid bad decisions that would lead us ultimately to famine and our people faced famine, which is why Lono and the celebration of Makahiki was such an important event because it was the culmination of the year's work, the year's bounty, the harvest. It was offered to the god Lono in many ritual ceremonies. And today what we're trying to see right now is more people really sort of uh, learn and understand and embrace these traditions that go along with Makahiki to really reclaim a sense of identity and connection. You see lots of kids start playing these games, these traditional ancient games would in old days prepare the people and to identify the great athletes, the great warriors, the great poets, the great orators in these grand celebrations that would be presented uh, to the chief, to the community during the time of Lono. And some people will say that, you know, during this time, it's an evaluation of the wealth and the well-being of the society, of that community, of the king himself, and the way that he rules, because ultimately a good chief is a chief who can feed many. These are the times during the season of Lono, the season of healing and peace and community, to really celebrate the collective work, the collective responsibilities that the society shares. In my, as a 21st century Hawaiian living in urban Honolulu, what about Makahiki can you feel, observe, perpetuate? Reclaiming space is an important part of Makahiki to restore our presence in those spaces, restore connections, to, to revive the ancient games, to revive an ancient spirit, 
and mana that feeds our people and our people are drawn to. It's a very special opportunity to always be able to participate in, in any makahiki ceremony. And there are many different ones throughout all of Hawaii, uh, throughout all the communities. So I would recommend put yourself out there, learn how to make a lei, learn how to make a ho'okuku and participate. It's an important time for for all of us, you know, to come together and to have important conversations, conversations that heal, conversations that clarify, conversations that, that move us forward. And we make, in this season of makahiki, we make plans and resolutions for what the following year will bring. This is an important time for us to reset ourselves, to reset our intentions, to reset our plans, to refine, tighten up loose ends, and so that we are more focused as we transition into a new year, into a new season. Imaikalani Winchester teaches at Halau Kumana Public Charter School in Makiki. Well, I mean, how could we really feel this time of year, Makahiki season, in this particular place, Hawaii? I think we should head to Molokai. <laughs> Ka Molokai Makahiki Festival started in January 1981 to involve the island's keiki in Hawaiian tradition and culture. Lana Korpus was raised on Maui and Molokai, where her grandparents live. She moved to Molokai several years ago to work at Aina Momona, a community organization dedicated to sustainability. Kamaloka Imakehiki Festival is one of Lana's projects. She's been up close and involved a number of times in this closing tribute to the Makahiki season. They go the full games and everything on Moloka'i, the chess, konane, tug-of-war, huki-huki. And I was asking Lana if these games really do get people into the action. In every competition, I like to say it gets heated, like, we have really good um, school spirit, that's for sure. The cheering and the intensity is definitely there because the kids are like into it, making sure their classmates do an awesome job and making sure they bring that victory back to the schools. It's super cute to watch them get all intense and see that competitiveness come out in them, you know? Um, <laughs> I thought I saw some people playing a game where they were hopping on one foot. Yeah, hakamoa, which is our chicken fight. So it's a balancing act, and you kind of got to um, push your opponent out of the ring, or they <laughs> fall first to the ground. Yeah, really intense. So we try and start that one off to get the hype going, you know, like everybody's cheering, and <laughs> they go for it. it. It's really funny and cute to watch them go after it. <laughs> Well, people got to picture it. So they're right. hopping on the right leg and they're joined with their right hands and they're right. trying to push and pull or hop them out of out into a circle. Yeah. You need some balance and coordination definitely for that sport. So then COVID hit. So what did you guys think? What did, Because you came up with such a different thing to do. What were you thinking? <laughs> right. So it was hard. Of course, like everybody else, we joined the um, virtual route, you know, and the thought behind the virtual was like, okay, we kind of interact with the kids, but we can show them maybe the history of where like Makahiki came from and like the games that we play, why we play those games. And then like kind of honor like our past champions and who's been there. And so with that thought, our former member of the board came up with an idea because she was into ceremonial stuff of having Lono being walked from one end of the island to the other, which is what we kind of did to celebrate the time of Makahiki season 
instead of having the games and interacting with everybody. Um, we kind of got people to sign up to do the journey pretty much and what part of the segment they wanted to walk and how far and, and stuff like that. So the turnout was really awesome. Like it was a one week event. So every day he crossed like one part of the island. Describe it because you folks carried the Akualoa, that tall staff with the cross piece that's draped with kappa. Lono. He was Lono, like pretty much that yeah. was our Lono banner, which he walks in with us every Makahiki year. And so he was walked starting from Halava, which is the farthest east you could start from. And he walked up from daylight. They had ceremony, opening ceremony down there, you know, just a short prayer and like um, good blessings for the day and what is going to come out of this. You know, just everybody was kind of, we didn't know, you know, because it's the first time we've been and it turned out really successful. Like everybody really enjoyed it. Every day was different and every day was a beautiful day. It was amazing. It would start <laughs> blessings in the morning and just clear up during the day. And we was able to walk in. We had, um, we definitely had help from the wind, you know, like because of his um, banners up on the side, it definitely took with the wind. So the people carrying him had to be mind strong i think to just keep walking and going at the pace that he wanted to go because he said it you know lono did when i say he um it was it was really there's a connection for sure there's some spiritual stuff and feelings you could definitely feel while you're walking with him and going through that so whoever was able to be a part of that i think would would definitely feel the same way that I'm describing. It was definitely something awesome. And I, I hoping we can get together to do that again this year at the least. What are some of the th thoughts that you had walking with Lono on the road? I wasn't there the whole way because it took a week to get him from one end to the other. We could probably do it like that journey in two days, but I think the stopping and spending the night at certain Ahukua'a and districts and whoever wanted to host him for that night, you know, like I think that made a difference because he was able to settle down and take a break as well. Just having him take that journey was, it was something else. Like I can't even describe it. I think you have to be a part of it to feel it. It was amazing. And to share that with people who cared and felt the same way made it a much better journey with like a lot more power to it, you know? Mm -hmm. I did the last journey with him because he spent the night at my grandparents' house and he just felt like at home, to be honest. Like we brought him in the house and he just hung out with us and everybody just, you know, kind of talked stories and mellow and reminisced about like, the old Makahiki and when it first started and how we got to this point. And so the morning um, he was to do his final leg, which was from Ho'olihua all the way down to Haleolono. That morning was very calm, a nice light rain. 
everybody came through and said their pool is to have a beautiful day. And we started walking and it was just this nice overcast with beautiful rainbow right over as we just started. There was an interesting part because we was coming down the hill and there's pastures and the horses, like their reaction to Lono was just something very unique. They came up to the fence and they were just going crazy, like bucking and jumping up and down and like kind of acknowledging him too. Like it was, it was, it was cool for sure. <laughs> Super cool. But we made it and we walked him all the way up Mauna Loa Hill all the way to the west side, down to the beach, you know, it was a journey for sure, but he made it and he wanted to get there because the wind started picking up at the top of Mauna Loa. It's like, hey, don't quit now. We're almost there. You know, like everybody was kind of hurting going up that incline. So the winds picked up and he's like, come on, let's go stopping now. We're almost there. So it was really cool. Um, along the way, we did gather ho'okupu from people who wanted to present. So from the starting from the East, we stopped at the school on the East end and they gave their ho'okupu and their their chants. And um, in town in Kaunakakai, we stopped at Kaunakakai school and they gave their oli and their ho'okupu. So everybody's ho'okupu was brought to the end of his journey, which is down Haleolono. And um, we set, sail a va'a, a canoe with him on top and all of the ho'okupu and just sent him off and it was beautiful. It was calm and for some reason when they let him off he just cruised right next to the boat. He just hung out like next to us and we kind of had to tell him like okay it's it's your time like we mahalo you you know we're ready we're ready. So after that the dolphins came in they gave their <laughs> presents and that was it. He was on his way. So it was, it was definitely a connection with the spiritual true Lono. It was beautiful, I must say. It was pretty awesome. Awesome experience. Oh, mahalo, Moloka'i, for doing that. Lana Corpus, mahalo. What are you folks doing this morning, huh? At Aina Momona, this gorgeous Aloha Friday. Let's all get in the swing here. Miley Swing, with the son of Moloka'i, George Helm. As president of the Protect Kaho'olawe Ohana, Helm helped shape Hawaii's sovereignty movement before he was lost at sea off Kaho'olawe in March 1977. 26 years old, George Helm, the year before he disappeared. Ooh, I guess that's about it for this Aloha Friday. Mahalo to all of our guests. And, you know, we just love to hear from you, too. You can call us at 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Visit the conversation page on the HPR website and share, share. The program's produced by Savannah Harriman-Pote, Russell Sudiona, and Lillian Song. Our theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. Do join us Monday when Catherine Cruz picks up the conversation 
I'm Noetani Gawa, and Imai told us this time of year, the greeting in Hawaii is Lono Ika Makahiki. Use it, Lono Ika Makahiki, and Happy Aloha Friday.